Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 151. I've kind of lost track of the quarantine dates here, but I think that this is day 18 of self-quarantine. That's right, huh? I got back from Florida, 7, 8, 16, 17, 18. Yeah, day 18 of self-quarantine. It's weird. New York is getting real bad. Um, obviously, you've seen all the statistics online if you're not um, if you're not living in New York, but a whole lot of sick people, hospitals filling up. Everything's kind of really shut down now to where even the, the groceries and the pharmacies and everything, they have a quota for how many people they can let inside. Um, luckily, I've been quite fortunate to, to be able to stay healthy and happy. So uh, I hope that you are as well. And I hope that you've been getting at least some enjoyment out of these episodes because that's why I do it. I hope you're entertained. I hope you're learning. My guest today is incredible. So last week, eh, maybe two weeks now ago, uh, saw a documentary called The Ladakh Project. That word is spelled L-A-D-A-K-H. And the subject of that film is Noria Newman. She is a professional kayaker, and she's from France. Now, the documentary is in, it's incredible because it's all self-shot on a GoPro. So the majority of it is just sitting atop her helmet, but then she takes it down and talks to it sometimes and, and narrates a bit. Uh, it's almost like um, a reality show confessional type of a situation. Um, but she did this solo trek in India on three rivers, one of those being the Indus, which you've likely heard of. And wow, this is wild. So I've, <laughs> I've kayaked in, in some streams and ponds and lakes and things like that. She is in pure white water and there's one really horrifying and not horrifying, terrifying moment in the film where she's caught up in a swell and it looks like she's going to lose all of her equipment and lose her GoPro and she is kind of just bobbing up and down the water and it looks like she can't get out. I, I don't know how frequently this type of thing happens because I am not a professional kayaker, but it seems like a pretty harrowing experience and something that shook her up. The water was also freezing, and so then she had to deal with that, you know, camping right after that, and she's all alone. I think she had a satellite phone in the case of an extreme emergency, but just what a badass to make it through that and then to make it through the rest of the journey. Man, really cool and really inspiring. So I checked her out after that, and she has uh, kayaked in over 40 countries around the world, so she's had some really incredible adventures, been to some really amazing places. And wow, like again, I, I'm so blown away by the fact that she's kayaking down massive waterfalls. I don't even understand the physics and the logistics of that, how, how you survive something like that. But she is a pro and she's widely considered one of the best in the world. Now, she's also overcome, you know, barriers to entry. I wasn't really aware of this, but am now that I've read a lot that, uh, you know, there's, it's a, a sport that's typically had a lot of men in it a lot of Americans, Australians. So to be a French citizen and to be a woman who's just crushing in it, she had to overcome a lot of barriers. Um, I didn't make that at all a focal point in this because I didn't think it mattered. Um, but I think it's important to know that she's really conquered a lot of odds. I know that there were some bureaucratic issues with getting a visa at one point, some political issues within the sport of kayaking itself in France, and she's overcome all those. 
and that the film's really incredible. You can watch it for free. I think that it's Red Bull who streams it, but I think the, the host is, is YouTube. So you can put that, you could just go to the show notes for this episode and you can click on it. Um, yeah, I'm looking now. It's on Red Bull's YouTube page. It's also on Noria's. So I'll link to both of those. Um, one of the videos is it, they call it a kayaker solo adventure in India. So I would really recommend that you pause this right now. If, if you're at home right now, if you're on quarantine, or if this is, you know, years down the line and you're listening in 20, what, 2025 and, and go watch it. So you have some context to know what we're talking about. We talked maybe for about 10 minutes about the actual documentary and that trip. And we talked about all sorts of other places she's been around the world. I'm really hoping she writes a book. I think that would be really incredible. Uh, so yeah, check her out. She's really great. Uh, recorded this one remotely as I've been doing, obviously, because can't get outside. So I'm speaking a little bit more slowly in this one. So just kind of bear with me. Um, she was over in France. I was here in the States and you know, the, the sound issue, uh, sound quality wasn't the greatest on her end hearing me. So I had to speak a little slowly, but really love this one. This is one of, one of my favorites in a long time. So yeah, go support her if you can. And if you can support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon. There's a link for my Patreon in the show notes for this episode. All right, folks, hope you enjoy this one. I sure did. Well, I was just asking when, when you were just here in the States, uh, did it come close to the time when we started closing the borders because of uh, Corona? Were you able to make it out? Well, uh, I think you guys didn't close the border and started reacting maybe like 10 days after most countries in the world. Uh, but uh, what happened is uh, Canadian government uh, were spreading the info that all Canadian citizens should try to make it home uh, as soon as possible. And then France had similar guidelines and so uh, once we heard that, we decided to pull the trigger and try to make it across the Canadian border and, and back home uh, as soon as we could. And I made it home uh, just before lockdown. So it was like pretty much the last trains from Paris to where I live. Wow. So it was, it was definitely a good call for me to to fly back, it would have been very hard uh, if I had just waited another 24 hours. And I really don't want to ever get stuck in the U.S. Uh, <laughs> with any medical issues. Yeah, I totally get it. You were um, you were up in Washington, right? Yeah, in the PNW in BC first, and uh, in uh, White Salmon. Wow, cool. Well, uh, you know, the, the reason that uh, I really wanted to talk to you and the reason I, I found out about your career is through the film that was picked up uh, on the Banff Film Festival circuit. I watched that maybe two weeks ago at this point with my girlfriend and we really loved it. Um, 
And so I dived a little deeper and I got to find out a lot about you. And I want to hit a lot of that stuff, but I want to maybe first start with the film. And I want to tell people who are listening right now to just sort of pause and you can go online and you can stream it. I think it's available through uh, Red Bull's website and I'll have a link in the show notes. Um, but it's an incredible film, Noria. And I'm wondering first, like how it came to be. Did you film it all first and then it got picked up for a project? Or did you, did you set out to, to make a documentary when you first decided to do this trip? Um, so I went to India for a race, uh, which is the Malabar River Festival. And, and since I quit uh, slalom, which is the Olympic canoe discipline, I made a promise to myself that I would no longer travel just for a race, that I would always race and then make sure I get to see the country more or paddle or do another side project. Uh, so after the race, we had a plan to explore uh, some rivers in the states of Kerala so and the south of India. And uh, it turns out, although we were sponsored by the, the Kerala Tourism Board, uh, we didn't get any of our permits. And everywhere we would go, we would get stopped by the police and they would state that it was too dangerous for us to attempt to paddle the rivers we came here to do. And so this whole two weeks were really frustrating with, um, you know, people not really respecting the concept of personal space and they will just touch you and take photos and go for your gear. Um, and it was a little bit hard, uh, especially since local people would snitch on us and call the police. Our driver would inform the, the government what we were planning to do. So. We ended up not paddling much at all in those two weeks and I was really frustrated and I thought that if I left then, I would never ever go back in India. I hated this place. Wow. There's too many people for me. People were intrusive. All I had seen really is like police station. Most interaction consisted in going from one administration office to another and really they, they, they're just treating us like idiots. Um, and I had this Indian friend that told me about this combination of rivers in Ladakh. And at this point I, I was really frustrated and at some point I wanted to give India a second chance because I had heard so many good things about that country and and that was really far from any of the things I had experienced. So I committed to miss my flight on purpose. Turns out it was a non-refundable flight. Uh, I was pretty broke at the time. All I had was a little bit of Indian cash uh, from the price money from the race, but on my general bank account, it, it wasn't really great. And I really didn't want to ask my parents for some loan. <laughs> uh, so I pitched 
a project to Red Bull at the very last minute and told them I was doing this expedition and I could film. And I pretty much traded the footage for a plane ticket back home. Um, and, and I just went on and I had one GoPro and filmed as much as I could. Wow. So that's how it happened. It was very last minute. Um, yeah. You know, it's, a, it's amazing because you're totally alone and you do have the GoPro. And when I was watching it, I was thinking of the movie Castaway, if you're familiar with it, when Tom Hanks essentially like becomes friends with a volleyball <laughs> because there are no other people around. Did, did having the camera sort of give you, give you any comfort because it's almost like you had something to do to keep your mind off of, you know, all the hard work you had to do every day? Uh, I, well, that's the thing. It wasn't like, it wasn't supposed to be hard. Uh, uh and if I didn't mess up, it would have been just, you know, just a pretty average random trip. It was way within my abilities. Um, but I made too many mistakes and, and all the smaller mistakes led to a bigger mistake. Um, like I, I should have taken a couple more days to make sure I was like acclimatized to the altitude. Um, I should have probably not go without a dry suit, but Indian customs kept my dry suit on hold because they didn't know what it was. Uh, I had a $20 sleeping bag. I didn't have a tarp. I have a XXL fake Decathlon poncho and some little pieces of rope from the local hardware store. Um, I had a late start because the guy that was supposed to drive me at 5.30 was passed out at the bar uh, when I went wow. with him. Uh, and all those things probably generated a little bit of like stress and anxiety and okay, I need to cover some, some distance. I need to make it faster. Um, and I ended up just not paying attention and not scouting a rapid. And I had what we call a close call. So I had a, an accident. I got stuck on, on some rocks, uh, but there was a siphon. A siphon for the non-paddlers is when all the water is disappearing and the rocks just like pretty much like the toilet flush. Um, uh, it's kind of scary when it's human sized and you're flushing for it. Um, and that's what happened. I went for it and I did some mistake. Uh, and then, then the trip became really hard and I think it's from this point where the the movie is changing because that stupid GoPro becomes pretty much a psychologist for me. Yeah. It's like my only remaining link for to the outside world. And so I think I'm talking to it like if I was talking to 
one of my friends rather than just talking to a camera. And so the fact that I'm really scared and really messed up in my head at this point kind of removes all sort of filters that I would have had, whether it's conscious or unconscious. Um, and that's why this movie is, is, is quite good despite a very small budget. I mean, production costs are pretty much nothing. It's just one GoPro and and a couple of batteries and a couple of SD cards, nothing else. Um, but somehow the accident forced me to be in a direct cinema approach. Yeah, it's a, it's a scary moment, <laughs> to say the least, in the film. Like We were getting anxiety just watching that. And I was thinking, because I've seen, uh, you've, you've done some incredible, incredible trips. And I've seen you go down like uh, as a, a waterfall that had a 70 foot drop, right? And obviously, like almost unanimously, you are the best in the world or one of the best in the world. And so you have a skill set that I'm sure you're incredibly confident in and most people don't have and will never have. But I'm wondering, like, what role does fear play? Because there were a couple of times in the film after that you were like, ah, oh, this is a bit scary. Um, is Does fear become a tool at all? Are you afraid often? Um, or do you put it out of your mind? Like in the movie or in general? Uh, I'm thinking both, really. So maybe more so in general. Um. Well, I think in, in general, when I'm kayaking, I'm always scared. Um, and I think I think it's important when you do dangerous things to be scared because it's what keeps you on your game, you know, and in, in the end of the day is, is what keeps you alive. Um, you know, like if, if you're doing something dangerous and you're not scared, you're probably going to not focus in and mess up and fall. Um, and I think it's, it's good to be scared when they're rational fears. Uh, let's say if, um, if I reach a big rapid and I look at it, I'm going to be scared because there is one bad spot on the left and one bad spot on the right. Uh, and, and seeing the consequences and, being scared of the consequences is very important in the decision making where uh, process where you decide if you run the rapid or if you walk around it. Um, and then you've got irrational fears, uh, and and these are the ones that they almost become an handicap. Mm. And I really see I really make a difference between between how you can be scared. Sometimes you can be scared and it's a really good thing. And sometimes you can be scared and it, 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 you're just, it just makes you miserable and not functioning. And so that's when it's tricky. And I think for me, after the accident, I definitely had, you know, the level of fear was whether it was rational or not, it was just too high for me to function properly. 
and I really had to work on myself to to be able to to paddle again and and like I mean it it was it was scary because right after I had a lot of flat water so I I was just stuck with with my thoughts and rewinding the whole accident and rewinding a lot of past traumas that I might have uh you know analyzing every single mistakes I had done uh thinking about how lucky I was to be alive and how much you know how it could have been way worse than how I mean it was 50-50 I I, I could have died and then it's kind of shitty to be alone for hours in the middle of the Himalayas, which is pretty hostile, big, big mountains, big walls around you. And to think about the consequences that would have on your mom and dad or some of your best friends. And then it sucks because you realize that what you do is, is so selfish. And sure, you, 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 you're living you know, you, you're living for your passion and it, and it, and it's great and, and it makes you happy. And that's something that you have chosen and that's something that you have no other choice to accept, but your parents or your friends that they, they, they don't accept it. They have no choice. They have no say. And so inherently when you mess up, it's them that are going to suffer more than you do. And so it's a very selfish, it's a very selfish process to, to just follow your own dreams. Yeah. And I appreciate your, your honesty about that. Um, I've, I've read a couple of books about, uh, flow and getting into a flow state. Um, I'm wondering like how often, or if you're able to achieve flow, how often, when you're kayaking, do you get into flow and are you able to make it happen or do the conditions have to be right for you to get into a flow state? Um, I mean, it, it's a tricky question. Uh, when I was training for in slalom, which is very competitive because it's an Olympic sport, basically what you're trying to 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 find it is that slow state because that's what's gonna enable you to perform. But uh, training every day, you're also aware that some days you don't have it. You know, you have you're too tired, or you have a a physical pain that will not make you reach that flow state where you can paddle at your best. And the good thing with those years is that if if you're not at your best on race day, it doesn't matter. Mm. You still have to go for it. Um, so I think rather than than trying to reach that flow state, which is, you know, sometimes you get it. Sometimes you get it and and you know it straight away. You run something really hard, really demanding physically and it all links up and you pretty much have the perfect lines and the perfect combinations of, of moves and, 
and it feels easy and it's almost like your mind is is off and somehow it's it's been it's been an automatic pilot uh and and sometimes you get it but uh, i i feel like it's not what you should focus on because sometimes you've hurt yourself where you're cold or the, the, the river is, is changing and you're slightly offline and, and that's when you also have to be good. Um, so I, I usually try to really focus on, on my lines and on, and on techniques and key points. And, and then if I reach the flow state, um, I'm usually really happy at the bottom of a rapid when, when I know it was, it was a really, really good line. And I felt like it, it was, it, that was it. But what I'm working on is consistency. And so even when it's not quite perfect and it's not quite the flow state, I want to have consistent good lines and a good enough technique that when it's, when I'm not feeling great, someone from the outside can't really tell the difference. And I think, I think that's, that's the problem with flow state is you seek perfection. And when you always try to seek perfection and, and be almost too perfect, um, you build up those expectations that it has to be perfect, but I mean, if you paddle over 300 days a year, you're not going to be perfect every day. And so if you expect to be very, very good every day and not leave yourself some slack, you're going to not fill up those expectations and you're going to end up with frustration. And I've, I've done that in, in my slalom years and that's not helping any progress. And for me, that's why the concept of, of flow state is, it's a slippery, yeah, it's, it's a dangerous thing. Wow, that's interesting. I've never thought of it in that context before. Um, you know, I, I've kayaked a little bit, right? <laughs> uh, but not really with strong moving water. I've kayaked uh, some lakes and some streams. So I'm wondering, um, I know that you were competitive quite young. Uh, what, what got you into the competitive nature of it? Uh, the presence. Um, no, in, in France, we have a very strong club system. Uh, so kids can start sports at fairly low cost. Uh, you pay a membership for the year, maybe it's $120, and you have a coach. You can borrow a boat, a paddle. All you need really is um, a, a swimsuit and a pair of old runners, and you can start kayaking. Uh, the thing that goes along with that uh, easy access to sport is that the clubs are uh, government-founded or it's founded by public money whether it's the city council or the territorial collectivity. And so basically, let's say the kayaking club is competing against uh, the theater club. And kayaking will never be the sport that has the most kids 
So a good way to show the city council that your club is active and is good for kids is to have kids taking part in competition and have results that you can actually like show uh, when you're when you're applying for budget. Uh, so that's why from a very young age, the clubs, they, they, they really uh, take the kids to those small kids competition. And then you're like, okay, we have uh, six uh, regional champions in their group age and, and it, it's good for the club and they make the local press and then uh, it justifies the foundings that, that they get. So um, with the cat club, we drive to competition and like most seven years old, um, I had terrible taste. So the plastic, uh, colorful trophies, I thought they were the coolest. And the bank branded fanny packs and the free candies, I was all about it as well. Uh, so that's pretty much how I became competitive. I, I just thought it was, it could be Christmas every weekend. So why not take it? Oh, that's funny. Um, I've seen that you have either kayaked or competed in, I think, almost close to 50 countries. Um, and I wrote down in my notes a couple of places that I wanted to talk to you about. So uh, there's three of them. The first is Tibet. I saw you write some really cool things about your adventures in Tibet, and I'm sure you could probably talk for hours about it, but um, could you give like a brief take of what your experiences in Tibet were like? Um, Tibet was, was really frustrating uh, because of the, the situation and the Chinese occupation there. Uh, you have to go on an all organized trip and it's fairly expensive. So we were a big crew uh, with people that, were very different and had different expectations of the trip. So the group dynamics were a little bit hard because some people, they want to make videos. And I was not there to make a video project. I was not there to work. So for me, making a video is work. Uh, and, and I really wanted to visit the place rather than, than uh you know, making time-lapse and things like this. Um, and then I think the, the worst part is that you you have to make a, a plan. So you have a travel itinerary and, and you get there. And it's really hard with kayaking because we don't know what the water levels are going to be like. So usually when we travel, we have that flexibility of like, we're able to look at the weather forecast, check the flows of the river and be like, okay, let's try three hours south because that's going to be way better for, for us. And so we were kind of stuck with the plan. Um, and then you have Chinese military checkpoints everywhere. You have you know, you cross the border and they don't check your electronics like everywhere else. They just open your book and they check what you're reading in case you're bringing submersive writings into the country. Um, you get into a car and you have a microphone and a camera recording you at all time. 
um, the police once again decided it was too dangerous for us. So they stopped us from running sections of rivers and and then there were landslides and they were freaking out because they don't want uh, any foreigner, especially not like a bunch of mixed countries uh, to get injured and then to have to deal with probably some some diplomatic procedures. Uh, and then because of that, they would put a lot of pressure on on our Tibetan driver and our Tibetan guide. And the whole situation was so messed up. You know, you, I, it was the worst trip of my life. Wow. Sure, you get to paddle a few amazing rapids. Uh, and the people I was with, they brought back some really good images and good footage and good photos. But I think I saw different things, you know, I saw, I saw a guy getting kicked by a policeman. I saw, I saw people with, with absolutely nothing and it's, and it's their country and, and there's just like buildings and buildings and buildings and military everywhere and, and constant surveillance and, and, and it's, it's, it's terrifying. I mean, you can only, you know, you, you look at, at your history classes from high school and, and some of the books you, you read, you know, like you think about George Orwell and, and it's horrifying and, and realizing if you open your eyes and actually look what's around you rather than just your own little kayak, uh, it's terrible. And, and I felt like I, I didn't know what I was doing here. Like it, it felt so out of place to, to just come to, to kayak, to just come to have fun and do your own little thing when this old place is just, is just getting totally destroyed. It's like a cultural genocide happening like super slowly and, and you dare to kayak and you're forced to see it if, if you're willing to open your eyes. Um, and I, I think that was that was really hard for me. Wow, thank because you. Because I'm doing something so insignificant that is literally useless. And then if I'm just being there is wrong. There, there are two other places I am curious about asking about, but I was thinking while you were saying that, you know, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't get seen, you know, in pictures or in the documentaries because they don't necessarily pertain to kayaking, right? Um, sort of like you were just saying. Uh, do you have any interest at some point in uh, potentially like writing a book about all of your experiences, all of like the travel and cultural things that you've been able to see because of kayaking? I would love to. I, I just don't know where I would find the time. But uh I should probably I should probably think about it now that we're isolated <laughs> with this coronavirus. But um I mean yeah, maybe one day. 
when I feel ready. Yeah, I think you have a really interesting, honest, and like really educated perspective about it. Um, Like I'm, I was like super interested in what you were just saying. So it would be really cool to see you, you know, expand upon these stories someday. Um, Another place that I'm really curious about is Chile. I think about maybe like 12 years ago, I saw a documentary called 1080 South about these guys who took a van trip and then a boat down to Patagonia to to hike a peak down there, a famous peak. Um, And I saw that you, I think last year maybe had been in Chile. So I'm wondering about your experiences there. Um. I think both Chile and Argentina are some of my very favorite places to go. Um, they're very different. It, it's always quite a shock when, when you cross the border to see how different both countries are, even if, if they're like literally one next to another. Um, there is There is something... Uh, about Patagonia where the wilderness for us is amazing and the rivers are amazing. Uh, but I think in both countries, I, I was lucky to have kayaking because uh, it makes you travel differently. You know, most people that go to Patagonia, they do the Carretera Austral, uh, whether they drive or they bike and they follow it, and that's about it. But because we have to look for rivers, and a lot of the time we have infos from previous groups that have been there, but if you want to find new stuff, there is a point where you have to go see the locals. So usually you start with the local paddlers, and I think everywhere in the world the paddling community is it's just really supportive and it's really great, and so you end up staying at a friend's house or staying at at the friend of a friend's mom's house. Um, and what's cool is you get to live with the people that live there. And so you really see a country differently than from a backpacker's or from an hotel perspective. And then when you look at those, at those, at those other rivers, they're more remote. Usually we get to drive to the very end of dirt roads and then sometimes we even um, go to the end of the roads and then we start carrying our kayaks and the people we meet out there are really amazing and and maybe that's that's why I, I love I love Chile and Argentina so much because I I met people that I almost consider family. Um, my friend Robert, who is an Argentinian paddler, you know, like I've spent Christmas and New Year's with him like a couple of years in a row. Uh, I know all of his family. Uh, same thing for the local paddling community in, in San Rafael. Uh, I spent a month uh, working at a rafting company or like trading uh, on water safety for accommodation and food and and I needed Spanish lessons so um, I ended up 
doing dishes for a month with the ladies from from the kitchen and and we're really good friends and I really I'm still in touch with them but I really miss them I'm pretty sure I'm gonna go back next year and and so I I feel like all of these little encounters that we're so lucky to get through kayaking that they, they make Chile and Argentina very special to me. Wow. Um, that's funny because the third place I wanted to ask about, I've had some very similar experiences. Um, and that place is Indonesia. I've found that the time I've spent there, all of the best moments have been through being invited into people's homes and sharing a meal and like the friendliness and hospitality that I've experienced in Indonesia is unlike anywhere else that I've been. Um, so I saw that you had also experienced that by being invited into someone's home in Indonesia, but that you also, uh, I think maybe in Sumatra had done some kayaking. So, uh, really curious and would love to hear about, uh, your experiences there. Yeah. In Indonesia was, was pretty good. Uh, I don't think I stayed long enough to, to really get an attachment as strong as what I've got for Chile and Argentina. Cause I've been, I've been there several times in a row and I've stayed for long enough with people to get to know them. Whereas in Indonesia, we're really trying to find those waterfalls. And so the first 10 days, we didn't sleep. Uh, we got off the plane, jet lag, went to bed at 3 a.m., woke up at 5, went straight to a waterfall. Um, they released water for us to get the first defense of that drop. And while we were waiting for the water, I was just so tired, I fell asleep. And my friend had to wake me up. Uh, and then we ran that and jumped in the car and went to another one and went to another one. And a lot of them were not runnable because they were not um, deep enough. But uh, we were really trying to find stuff. So we'd drive all night, hike, check something, and get back in the car. Um, and so I, I, I felt like... Uh, because we were kind of running after time and running after the rain and and trying to to really put all the chances on our side to to do that um, i I didn't get to fully appreciate uh, everything Indonesia has to offer, uh, especially Java and then um, once we got to to Sumatra. Uh, we had uh, this this paddler hubu that really helped us find the good waterfalls, and uh, and that was that was really really cool to just spend time with him and and hang out more, take time and meet his family and 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 after that we went to the Asahan River and there was a little race and. It was nice. We were all staying in the village. Uh, my mom came out for the race, so it had been a while since she last came on a on a kayaking race, and, and she was really funny. She's like, "Okay, try to get a room with with a separate bathroom and a little bit comfortable. And <laughs> I'm willing to to pay a little bit more 
because cause I'm older, I, I don't really want to sleep on the floor. And I was like, Mom, I'll do what I can do, but most likely we're going to sleep on the floor. And so it was pretty cool to have my mom sleeping on the floor in a random house, no room, uh, one bathroom for way too many people, um, bugs everywhere. And and it was it was cool to just be in the village and and see the people and hang out with them uh for for for, for two weeks but i i feel like um i would probably need to spend more time in indonesia it's hard because when you travel places you have the places you like most that you really want to go back to and then you have places that you'd want to discover and and it's it's hard to make a choice but I feel like it's very, I like returning to places I already know um, and, and keeping connections to, to the people that I met that I really care about. And so sometimes I feel like it's almost not worth it to, to try to, to go to new places at, at all costs. Um, but I guess it's a balance of everything. Yeah, you know, um, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, you have some like just absolutely unbelievable photos uh, of kayaking, of your trips around the world, of dropping in on, like I said, a seventy-foot fall. Um, you, can, yeah. Can you articulate a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was saying that you have some really incredible photographs of kayaking and of, you know, your trips around the world. Um, and that's what people get to see of you, right? But I'm wondering about the aspects of kayaking that they don't see, like how much physical preparation has to go into it. Uh, do you have to diet a certain way? Uh, are, are there a lot of like long-term sustained injuries? Um, what does all that work look like, uh, in order for you to be successful? Um, I guess, I guess, uh, it's true that it's really easy to fall into what people see. And, and a lot of the time, especially these days with social media, uh, I feel like people don't necessarily have, or at least not straight away, the critical thinking to be like, oh, wait, this is not the absolute reality. It's what I've been given to see. So in a lot of sport like kayaking or skiing, uh, all you see is, is the cool photos and the glamorous thing and the traveling and and let's say on the trip I went to Tibet, for example, um, you know, like people from my crew were like, dream team, trip of a lifetime, this is amazing, super good whitewater. Uh, and so that's the image of the trip that they gave people to see. So everyone's like, wow, this is so cool. Uh, when the reality was like, we were traveling in an occupied country getting stopped by the police we probably paddled like 
six rivers in three weeks or five rivers in three weeks, maybe less. Uh, and so sometimes there is a little bit of a gap between between what you see and what's really happening. Um, I I definitely try to to uh, not have too much of a gap because I'm not really comfortable with with the Polish social media thing, and I found that it's easier for me to just post things like. Like if basically my Instagram is a photo album for my mom, plus the waterfalls that she ate so that people want to see. Uh, and that way I don't need to worry whether or not people like it. Because if my mom likes it, that's, that's awesome. Um, but a lot of the time what we don't show is that of, of course you travel and it's wonderful, but... Sometimes you're hungry, sometimes you're cold. Try traveling in public transport with a kayak. It sucks. <laughs> uh, you know, you need to pay off the bus driver for them to accept taking your boat. Uh, it helps being a girl and looking younger than your age because uh, in last resort, you can always use the crying, which I have done in the past. Uh because sometimes you're stuck, you know, and you got to do what you got to do. Uh, and so these are the things that you're not necessarily going to show. Uh, but it doesn't mean they don't exist. And when you show something, even when you try to be honest about it, uh, you're going to select a photo. So in that process, you're already selecting part of the reality that you want to show. Why this frame and not another photo uh, and then you're going to write up a caption and so that's already maybe like putting an angle to the story you want to tell and, and and that's totally fine but I feel like sometimes people don't take a step back from what they see or what they're told uh, and it creates a very dangerous image of, of our sports where it's always the hard stuff and you're always a hero and you're always so strong. And the reality is that not at all. You're just normal and you're doing little circles in the water, which are useless. Just And whether you're the best kayaker in the world or, or you're just starting with the sport, it, it shouldn't matter as long as as you're happy and you're having a good time. Yeah, I mean, to you and your family and your friends, you're normal. But I think that what you're doing is also a real inspiration for a lot of people. I'm not in the world of uh, sports, of action sports, competitive sports. But I know that there are barriers for entry for some people. And you've shown that uh, it's possible to break down those barriers. And also, you're just uh, honestly pretty badass. And like, it might just be surviving a trip down a river to you, but it is an example of perseverance for a lot of people. And it shows people that they can overcome odds. Um, so I think in that regard, uh, what you're doing is, is greatly inspiring for a lot of people. Uh, I know it is for me. 
Um, so I'm, I'm curious about when the world starts to become normal again and we can all return to what we were doing before this virus. Uh, do you have any any goals or any trips or any projects that uh, you wanted to work on that you have coming up? Um, I have one big project, which is uh, uh, to run a, a waterfall. Uh, and I was supposed to train in the U.S. Um, and so I didn't get that last training phase. And I I will have to see how I feel if I'm physically ready if I'm if I'm mentally okay uh, if I can hopefully drop into smaller stuff uh, before so that might happen it might also be a next year project um, and then I I think I want to return to India maybe for some sort of, of redemption. Wow. Uh, but uh, that's very uncertain. We we don't quite have the budget um, yet, but we will see. Do you have any sort of crowdfunding or crowdsourcing in which people can can give to a budget for your projects? Um, you know, I I haven't quite uh, wrapped my head around this. Because if I do that, it means people, I'm asking people to pay for my personal entertainment mm. or personal trip, which I feel like when it's a sponsor, they get something out of it and it makes sense. But I don't really want to do crowdfunding unless it has a social purpose. I don't know, help kids or, or fight some illness or, you know, like maybe buy a kayak to a club that couldn't afford it otherwise. But I, I don't feel comfortable using it for myself. I think it would be, it's a little bit, it's a little bit shitty to be a professional athlete and ask people uh, to pay for more, uh, you know, like it's not like they're really gonna get anything out of it, and it's not like what you're doing is actually useful. So I don't have a crowdfunding, and I don't feel comfortable doing it for now. But maybe one day I'll, I'll, I'll cross that line. I just feel like. It's a little bit unethical for me at the moment. Mm. But I've done things that I thought were unethical before, <laughs> and I'm fine with them. So, you know, sometimes you change, but I'm not ready yet. Well, how about we uh, plug some places that people can go find you on the internet or find um, the documentary or find out more about your story? Where can we send people? Um, we have two movies on the Red Bull, uh, YouTube channel right now, uh, the Patagonia Triple Crown and the Ladakh Project. Uh, and then, uh, like all 
uh, athletes these days. I have a social media thing that I'm keeping updated. Uh, I don't do the TikTok because I'm too old for this. <laughs> but uh, I have Instagram and and that thing is linked to the Facebook and I have a YouTube channel with uh, questionable videos on it. But, um, yeah, sometimes I post on there. Awesome. And people can find that in the show notes for this episode, as always. Um, I want to say thank you, Noria. This was really, really cool to get to talk to you. Uh, it's a real honor to do so. Thank you. You asked good questions. <laughs> Thanks so much. That is a wrap on 151 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you, Noria, so much. Wow, what a cool, cool person. What a cool conversation. Thank you to all of you, Voyagers, as always, for tuning in. Greatly appreciate all of you. And I'm going to keep saying this, but if you are stuck at home, I hope that you're at least able to use some of this time to do something productive and something great, to learn some new skills, watch a lot of documentaries, read a lot of great books, listen to podcasts, plan for the future, learn how to cook some, some really killer meals. I've, I'm really fortunate that I've been able to be productive and to get a lot of these episodes done. I've got a few more booked this week and then a few for next week. So I'll keep these coming. Thanks for, you know, sharing your time as, as you're sitting at home uh, with us, with the Voyager family, well, with me, really. I say us sometimes, uh, but when I say us, I'm, I'm thinking of all of you too. So yeah, hope you're able to, to get some type of a positive out of this. And I hope that you, your friends, your families, and your loved ones are all safe, happy, and healthy. All right, folks, I'll catch you next time. As always, please take care of each other. See ya.